please stand and join us in worship?
you seated. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, let me just uh, pause and say thank you uh, last week for your prayers as we returned from Alaska. We had a great trip up at Solid Rock Bible Camp. Uh, we were sort of a group of 13 that were spread out all over the camp working in different areas. I got to work in an area called Wagon Train, which was the rising middle schoolers, uh, and got to work with them and do the Bible study with uh, Brennan Jones. And we had one young man, his name also was Brennan, who on Friday morning came over after the morning session and said, uh, Mr. Kevin, I really need to pray to receive Christ. I need to, I need to, get, I need to settle that before I leave. And so he said his own prayer, um, had tears in his eyes, and we knew it was a genuine decision. And so that was um, uh, what made it worth it all to hear that. So thank you for praying for us. Uh, we hope other decisions were made. We don't know any out loud, but hopefully seeds were planted uh, and folks are still thinking about some of the things we talked about while we were, th we were there. So thank you for your prayers. We do have another, another team leaving on Friday. We'll be praying for them at the end of the service, uh, headed to Paris. They leave on a Friday morning, and so you be thinking about them and praying for them, and you'll see some of them at the end of the service as pastor has a commissioning prayer for them uh, this morning. Let me just say welcome to everyone. I see a lot of new faces today. Uh, there's a care card located in the pew rack there just in front of you. If you would please take one of those, we would like to have a record of you being here and at least send you something from Pitts and tell you uh, thank you for worshiping with us. So if you take a moment to do that. And then on the back of the care card is a place for all of us uh, to fill in any prayer requests that you might have. And we do get those. We see those. The secretaries get those to us. And we do pray for you. So we want to know what's going on in your life. So if you'd like to take a moment and do that, as you leave today, you can place those care cards in the giving boxes. Uh, they're white, and they're on the columns just on either side of the double door as you leave this morning. You can place those there, and we'll be sure to get those. So thank you again uh, for being here. It is time for deacon nominations. Uh, forms are available in your community group and at the information desk in the lobby. They're due back by July 23rd. So if you would take one of those and prayerfully consider uh, nominations for our new deacons. And then Friendly Neighbors meets this Tuesday at July 11th. That's our senior adult group uh, that meets here at, uh, on July 11th at 1130. We ask you to bring a dish to share and we will meet in the core gym uh, this Tuesday. There are mission t-shirts available through today. If you're still interested in getting those, please see Garrett at the info desk. Uh, she does need to complete that order, so please go by and see her today. And then uh, Grief Share begins on Tuesday, August 1st. Uh, if you need encouragement due to the death of a spouse, child, uh, other, another family member, or a friend, please check out the table in the lobby, and we're going to have a video announcement in just a moment, or contact Linda Bounds about that. But again, thank you for coming today. We do want to pray, uh, and just by raising your hand, would you say, I have, a, I have a prayer need this morning. Anybody in the, in the congregation? All over. And so God knows those needs. Let's go to him silently for just a moment over those. Uh, and just pray that God would prepare your heart for worship this morning. And then I'll pray out loud. Let's pray together. God, in our busyness, sometimes it is good just to come before you and get silent. 
also to bring our needs to you, God. You know each and every individual in this room. You know each individual need. And God, you know about those more than we do. And so, God, we ask you to give us wisdom about those situations. If there's something that we need to do or say, God, that we would have the courage to do that. God, if it's for us to sit back and say, uh, God, you, you handle this, you deal with this, then maybe that's our prayer. But God, we pray for each situation uh, that you would give us wisdom as you've instructed us to ask for. God, we do pray for Jonathan and Laura as they're away from us on vacation, God, that you would just give them a great time of rest and bring them back refreshed, God, from their vacation. We, we thank you that they've been able to do this. God, we do pray for our Paris team that leaves in a few days, God, that you would use them in ways they don't even know about yet, that, God, you would have appointments for them ready, that they would have the courage to open their mouths and share the gospel. God, for this service today, we pray, God, that you would work uh, in us, work through our pastor. God, give him the words to say. We know he has a message you've given him. So, God, just... Uh, speak through his mouth today. Give him wisdom to remember what he studied. And God, that our hearts would be open to listen to your voice through what he's going to say and what your word's going to say. Give us a great day today. Help us to worship you and what we do and say. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Would y'all please stand? Jesus rose, so I shall rise. 
through grief was certainly much more difficult than what I ever imagined. There were times I just could not concentrate on things. There's days I wake up and I don't want to do anything. It's just devastating. The grief that happens after the death of a loved one can leave you feeling confused, lost, and alone without a roadmap. But other people have traveled this grief journey before you, and there is hope and a way forward. GriefShare is a proven video-based support group that connects you with others who are traveling the grief journey you're on right now. GriefShare is a place where you can be as raw and as ugly as you want to be, and it's okay. I joined them online and it was great. It was wonderful. Each weekly Grief Share session consists of an insightful video with grief experts and testimonials, a small group discussion, and encouraging workbook exercises. You'll also receive free online resources and tools that help you move forward in hope and healing. I gained so much more than just understanding of grief, and I think I saw it from a bigger picture, too. Visit griefshare.org to learn more. Amen. Pray for Linda Bounds and Joyce Seeger as they get ready to lead another cycle of Grief Share. Uh, folks, uh, at the end of the service, you know, we'll be commissioning a group 
uh, to go to Paris, and that's wonderful. Uh, we exist to do missions, Acts 1-8, our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost ends of the earth. But what I want you to see is things like grief share, every cycle of grief share that they've done, they've seen people from the community come in and be a part of that class. And people in that class receive the gospel. And we've seen lives touched in powerful ways. That's missions also. That's something that you're doing right here uh, in your church and community. Both are missions. So keep that in mind as the next cycle of grief share gets to start. And maybe you know somebody that's experienced some traumatic loss or event in their life and they could benefit from this. Let them know uh, about this and pray for Linda Bounds and uh, Joyce Seeger as they lead this ministry and there's a number of others in our church that assist them uh, in this. If you're a, a guest with us this morning, we have been in the Gospel of Mark for quite a number of weeks now. In fact, uh, this morning we're up to the 38th message uh, in the series and we'll be looking at chapter 13 this morning entitled, The End Shall Come. The End Shall Come. Chapter 13, I've really struggled how best to present this chapter. I thought about dividing it up, but then you really need to see the chapter as a whole and the message. And so the crowd wouldn't be the same next week, it is this week, and... It, it would just be clumsy to try to tie the two together. I think it helps if we'll see the chapter in its entirety. I'm going to also ask you to turn and find Revelation chapter 6 because I'll be there later on in the message as well. But if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word and let's read the chapter in its entirety. In verse 1, it says... And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. 
And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be handed, uh, excuse me, be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the house uh, top not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose... He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on the guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling uh, from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come uh, suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, in the book of 2 Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 
Peter describes people who are mockers. They're unbelievers. They're scoffers. And specifically he says what they are mocking about and doubting and unbelieving and what they're skeptical of is that the end is going to come. You know, the Bible plainly points out that the end is indeed going to come, though. Regardless of what scoffers and mockers say, the end is going to come. And Mark chapter 13 is specifically a chapter in the Bible that points this out. Now, I do want to say to you today, interpretively, this is the most difficult passage in the Gospel of Mark. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus told this narrative to his disciples when they were leaving the temple, going across the Kidron Valley, and going up on the other side uh, to the Mount of Olives. And that's why it's called the Olivet Discourse, the location where Jesus and his disciples were when he gave this teaching. Let me say also there needs to be a bit of charity as we talk to others about this text. Because we realize that not everybody sees every single detail the same way. In fact, trust me, you can lay out all of your commentaries by some of the most noted scholars of today. You can lay them out and study them one by one. And what you will find even among the scholars is that there is a great deal of variance in what they believe. And so I think that ought to tell us that study of this chapter and of this topic should entail a degree of humility. I want you to keep in mind the context. It is Passover week. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. He's cleansed the temple. He's had numbers of confrontations with the religious establishment. Having been, been rejected by them, he now turns and leaves the temple. The temple is no longer going to be the basis of God's dealings with man. And folks, that is very important to see. The temple is not to be in God's program for the new covenant. Even if the temple should be rebuilt again before Christ returns, which some Christians believe it's going to be. But even if it is, I want to say to you, it would have absolutely no purpose at all in God's redemptive plans. Jesus departs from the temple in this passage, and what's being communicated here is a lot more than geography. He's departing from the temple. The purpose for the temple in the old covenant is now over because Jesus has fulfilled the temple purposes. Now, we're not told which disciple brought up the magnificence of the temple. Uh, when this disciple pointed out how wonderful a structure the temple was, that was certainly no lie. It was one of the most magnificent structures of its time. 
It had been under construction for 46 years and was only nearing completion as we come to Mark chapter 13. Its location made it quite a sight to see. Because you see, Jerusalem was already built up on a mount compared to the surrounding area. And the temple was there on top of Mount Moriah. And so any direction you approach the city of Jerusalem, you would see a tremendous, magnificent view of the temple. The temple had nine massive gates, some of which were overlaid with gold, and much of the uh, exterior of the temple itself was also plated with gold. Josephus writes that some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, 5 in height, and 6 in breadth. That would be single stones 150 feet long, 15 feet high, 18 feet wide. Absolutely massive. The foundation stones of the temple would have been about the size of a train boxcar. And yet Jesus says it will all be destroyed, and indeed it was. In 70 AD, Titus ordered his troops to preserve the temple, but one of his soldiers set fire to the interior of the temple, and it gutted it. Now seeing this happen, Titus then ordered that the temple and the city be raised to the ground. As the gold in the temple was melting, it was running like molten lava between the large stones. In order to get the gold, Titus' army pried apart the massive stones and they chipped away the molten and the hardened gold. And so literally, just as Jesus says here, not one stone will be left upon another. Now, as Jesus told this prophecy, it's important to realize that he didn't do so simply to satisfy man's curiosity. His emphasis throughout the entire chapter is that his disciples be ready. That that we would be prepared and whenever it happens that we would be ready. We're to understand that things in the world are going to degenerate and continue to degenerate. We're going to see all of this happening as we are. And in the midst of it all, Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be surprised by all of this. I'm telling you ahead of time, it's going to happen. Things are going to go downhill. Things are going to get worse and worse. But you simply need to be ready. Nothing you and I see going on in the world around us is to take us by surprise. And as one commentator points out, the discourse here serves to warn the church about either skepticism of the future or an unhealthy fanaticism. It's to remind us, he says, to live faithfully now with the realization that surely one day our Lord will indeed return. And so we need to live with this healthy balance. Now the first thing I want you to see with me this morning is the destruction of the temple and false signs of the end. And that's from verse 1 to 13. I'm not going to read those uh, right now. 
But uh, once they get to the Mount of Olives, you'll notice that four disciples, and the four disciples there are named. What do they do? They begin questioning Jesus about what he has just said. And I want you to notice that we can really break their question down into two. First, when will these things be? And second, what will be the sign of the end? Now they were probably associating both of these questions with the same event. They were probably thinking the destruction of the temple and the end of all things are, are going to happen all at once. But I want you to notice as Jesus answers and Mark, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, records these words, we can really split the question up into two. And we, we know it needs to be split up because on the one hand, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and we know that the end of the world did not happen then. All of this goes to show us something, doesn't it? Man is insatiably curious about the future. And this is not odd when you think about it. Probably every one of us in here, at some point you've thought, you've pondered the future related to your kids and your grandkids. What are they going to grow up to be like? Are they going to go to college or not go to college? What kind of careers are they going to land down in? Are they going to to get married and have children themselves? Where am I going to be in my future with my retirement, with my career? Where am I going to live? What's going to happen in the future with me? We all think about these things. I think it would be unusual if we didn't think about the future also. The future in terms of the end of the world. And thinking also about eternity. It would be very unusual if we thought about the future in everyday things, but didn't think about the future in more important things. The problem is we're normally very wrong in our speculations. We're wrong even about the minor day-to-day things. I mean, just listen to the following, for instance. In 1870, a bishop came to an Indiana college campus for a conference. The president of the school said in his speech that he could see the day coming when men would fly in the sky like birds. Well, the bishop chastised him. He said, sir, you're speaking blasphemies. The Bible says that flight is reserved for the angels. Well, ironically, the bishop's name was Milton Wright. Only three decades after he chastised the college president, his two sons, Wilbur and Orville, made the first successful flight from a windy hill in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. In 1899, Charles Duell, the director of the U.S. Patent Office, assured President McKinley, he said, Sir, everything that could possibly be invented has already been invented by now. In 1903, the president of the Michigan Savings Bank denied a loan to a young car-building entrepreneur named Henry Ford. The banker told Henry Ford, 
The horse is here to stay. The automobile is just a novelty, a passing fad. And in 1949, popular mechanics predicted computers in the future may weigh no more than 1.5 tons. We don't have a very good record of seeing into the future, do we? And yet at the same time, we're, we're fascinated with the future. Others are afraid of the future. The disciples wanted to know, and I want you to notice what Jesus does. He begins by pointing out false signs of the end, things that should not cause us to think that the end is here. He mentions false Christ that will come. History has seen a long stream of false teachers who have claimed to be a savior of some sort and they've led people astray. Maybe one of the most famous that comes to our minds, I suppose, would be Jim Jones. He led all those people astray to commit mass suicide. Every so often, somebody comes along claiming to have all the truth and to be the truth, leading people astray, and Jesus says, Beware of this. Beware of this. And then he goes on to say, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Every time major wars have broken out in modern times, some people start wondering, are we at the end? Is this going to be the end of the world? And Jesus says, when all this happens, no, it is not the end. The end, when it happens, you're not going to have to wonder, is this the end? You're going to know. When Christ returns, uh, you're not going to have to ask, is, is, this, is this him? You're going to know. What Jesus is saying, all of these signs have got to take place first. And you're going to see all these things happening. False Christ and a nation rising up against nation because war is part of a fallen planet. Jesus even mentioned earthquakes and famines. Natural disasters are a part of a fallen universe. And Jesus points out all these things are just the normal part of living in a world that is affected by sin. And so we need to resist the temptation to say the end is here every time we see one of these things taking place. Folks, but we do know we're in the last days. In fact, Jesus' birth ushered in the last days. Because Jesus is God's final and complete way of speaking. And so we know that we're in the last days. And that the last days have now been going on for more than 2,000 years. And living in the last days, Jesus says all of these bad things are going to happen all the time. They're like a woman's birth pains. Nobody knows exactly how long the labor is going to go on. Now, like labor pains, we can assume the closer and closer we get to the birth uh, of the end, the labor pains are going to get worse and worse and closer and closer together. But after each birth pain, you don't necessarily say, here comes the baby. You ladies know this, you may have been in birth pains for 18 or 20 hours. Others may have only been in birth pains for 30 minutes or an hour. 
You just don't know. And so again on this, we need to resist the temptation every time we go on a news homepage and and read some of the troubling news that's going on around the world or in the nation. We need to resist the urge of saying, "Uh uh-oh, the end's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. It might, but it might not. It still may be years and years away. It might even be decades and decades and decades away. Verse 9 assumes a somewhat lengthy period when the disciples began to go about the world and they get in trouble with authorities. And Jesus said, don't worry about what you're to say at at that moment because the words are going to be given to you by the Holy Spirit. But the point is, there's a time of Christian persecution that's got to be completed. We know it started in the book of Acts. It's still going on today. As you and I sit here in the comfort of this sanctuary today, around the globe, many of our brothers and sisters uh, in Christ in different nations, they're suffering tremendous persecution. The 20th century, last century, was uh, called the century of martyrs. And And the 21st century hasn't begun any better. It's been estimated that since the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, worldwide, there have been 70 million Christians who have died as Christian martyrs. And in the 20th century alone, from 1900 to 2000, 45 million of these 70 million lost their lives. Maybe that'll put in perspective for you how much these things are happening around the globe. Jesus says that even family members are going to turn against other family members. And you're going to be hated. The world's going to hate you. You're going to be persecuted. In verse 10, he mentions that the gospel has got to be preached to the nations. And again, what does all of this give the sense of? All of this gives the sense of it's going to be a long, long time before the end happens. And so what's the lesson? Don't get discouraged. When bad things happen, some Christians get discouraged because they thought time would be closer. And when the end never seems to happen, some will even turn away from their faith. Some experience evil and suffering in the world and they give up on God because of evil and suffering. And they ask, if God's really there, why would he be allowing this? And why would he allow it to go on for so long? And because of evil and suffering, they give up on God. It's like Dr. Vance Havner said at one time. He said, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Folks, we can't let long delays discourage us. We simply can't. God renders time differently than we do. But we can rest assured of this. Justice delayed is not justice denied. There is indeed a time that Jesus is going to come back. There is a time that the world as we know it is going to end. And there is a time coming when everybody's going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. And God's going to set all things right. That day is coming. 
And so Jesus is saying, first of all, to his disciples here, be alert, be discerning. Don't go laboring, lab, labeling every event and every false cult leader that comes along as a sign that the end must be right around the corner. And so he's telling us we've got to be strong in our faith. We've got to keep growing. We've got to stay alert. And we've got to continue to be about the Lord's business. Whatever we see happening in the world around us, we don't need to pull back from our missions. We don't need to pull back from our growing in the Lord and, and start thinking, well, why do we even need to bother about all this? After all, it looks like the end's coming. No, we just need to keep doing what he's called us to do and leave the matter of the end in his time that's the first lesson we need to see here well secondly from verses 14 to 23 I want you to see true signs of the end both the end of the temple then the end of the age next Jesus begins addressing when it is right to say okay here it is but even this, we need to split things up a bit. First, there's going to be the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And verse 30 says, this generation will see all of these things. Many of those that Jesus was talking to that day would see these things happen. And then as we see later, especially in verse 24 and following, we are thrust ahead to the time of the end when the Lord does indeed come back. And folks, here is where the Olivet Discourse gets the most confusing. Please hear me here. You've got to understand as you're reading this chapter, some of the things that Jesus is talking about would, would refer to what happened in 70 A.D. And some of the things that he's talking about happening won't happen until the Lord's return at the end of time. But then on top of that, we need to see that what he's saying would happen in 70 A.D., only about 35 years into the future from their time reference point, some of the things that would happen in 70 A.D. would be like a snapshot showing what would once again happen at the end of the age. In other words, the horrible events of 70 A.D. were like a movie trailer giving a preview of what will happen at the end one day. Make sense? The confusing part of Mark chapter 13 is sometimes the verses are speaking of one event, the 70 A.D. event, and at other times, it's speaking of a yet future time. But you know, this is quite common in the Bible. It's like reading your Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament speaks of the first coming of Christ. Sometimes it speaks of the second coming of Christ. And the Old Testament prophet is speaking about the two as though they are back-to-back -back events. And we know they're not. Bible scholars explain it this way, and I, and I think this visual will be very helpful for you. Especially helpful to folks living in a state like North Carolina, 
where the mountains are so close by. You take a, a trip to the mountains one day and you're going up through Shelby and you hit 26 going up to Hendersonville towards Asheville or maybe you're going up uh, to Boone and you're miles and miles and miles away from the mountains and you see a couple of mountain peaks there and back from, from a distance how far out you are from getting there it, it seems to you like those two mountain peaks are right together. But then you actually get to the mountains and you find out, wow, those two mountain peaks weren't together at all. In fact, they were separated by a valley, a valley big enough that there was an entire city between the two mountain peaks. They looked like they were together when I was miles and miles away, but now that I'm here, they're separated by miles and miles. That's the way the Old Testament could sometimes be when talking about the first and second comings of Christ. And that's how the Olivet Discourse can be too. Sometimes he's talking about the more immediate event, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And at other times he's talking about the end that still hasn't happened yet. And that explains how all of the different interpretations of this chapter happen. Now, folks, let's don't miss the forest for the trees. There are a few things I think we can uh, uh, get everybody to agree on. First, Jerusalem was going to be destroyed along with the temple. And some of this refers to that event. We can know that because it's history. It's already happened. Secondly, we can agree that some of this that Jesus speaks of refers to the distant end. When Christ returns. A third thing we can agree on is what we're to be doing in the meantime. We're to be ready and alert and being about the Lord's business. Those are three legs of the stool that I think we can all agree on without question. And the emphasis here is the third leg of the stool. Be ready. Be alert. Some Christians today believe that the Jewish temple will be rebuilt during the tribulation. That's not where I am, but either way, temple or no temple, verse 14 has a dual application. Jesus says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The background of that is, is 167 B.C. when Antiochus IV Epiphanes desecrated the temple. He sacrificed a pig on the altar and he spread pig's blood around in the temple. And so it's referring to when, verse 14, the immediate fulfillment would be when Titus would go into the temple in 70 AD and they desecrated it and they destroyed it. But additionally, if you hold to a rebuilt temple, it will also refer to a time in the future when the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians, will come on the scene. He'll go into the rebuilt temple and he'll desecrate. Now if you're of the persuasion that a literal temple doesn't have to be rebuilt You still have the same dual application Titus destroying the temple in 70 AD And then likewise a man of lawlessness doing the same at the end 
He'll do something to cause a desecration of holy things, whether there's a temple or not. Same application. Verses 15 to 23 also share this dual fulfillment. On the one hand, the verses describe how horrible it was when Titus came in. But on the other hand, the verses seem to leave some of the fulfillment to a time yet in the future. And so thirdly, we need to look at understanding signs of the end. Verse 24 and following, this sends us into the future. In verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. So now it seems like we're talking about something yet still future. I want you to turn over to Revelation chapter 6 with me for a moment. Revelation chapter 6, begin reading with me uh, in verses 1 and 2. Because folks, Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And look at verses 1 and 2. John says there, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Who's this rider on the white horse? Some say it's not one person. But any number of rulers in the nations in the end of times who suddenly start to flex their muscles, they threaten violence and war, hence the bow. Now, if that's true, you can make the case we're seeing this now. Others feel like it's a picture of Jesus, while others feel like it's a picture of the Antichrist. I definitely don't think it's a picture of Christ. I think it's a picture of the Antichrist. And reasons I say that, as for the Lamb... He opens the seals and would not be one of the writers. To say it's the Antichrist follows the pattern that we've already seen in Mark 13. The first thing to happen is the arrival of false Christ. And I want you to notice some things about this person. What does he have in his hand? A bow, not a sword as in the case of Jesus in Revelation 19, but he has a bow. What does this suggest? He comes offering peace. He's kind of like Barney Fife with a bullet but no gun in his no bullet in his gun. It, it's like Cold War victories that he wins through diplomacy. According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, people are going to follow the Antichrist. Why? Because God sends a delusion upon people so that they will believe everything he says. Folks, could this explain the beginnings of some of some of what we're seeing today when people are already to begin beginning to believe crazy nutty stuff some of the things that are being promoted today by leaders politicians educators some things that defy common sense and science 
And we're already seeing people go along with all of this. <laughs> Let me give you a quick example. Men over 40 in here, and I don't raise your hand, but if you were to raise your hand in here, men over 40 who might be on some type of testosterone replacement therapy. Seriously. You know, like Androgel, you... you Squirt a couple of pumps and rub on this shoulder and this shoulder. That's the application points. And you read the, you read the medical flyer and the cautions and warnings. And it, it's synthetic testosterone you're putting on yourself. Guess what it says in the warning? Warning. Women and children in the household should not be exposed to this. And yet some of these same pharmacy groups, I assume it's probably some of the same ones, doing some of the testosterone stuff with girls, young girls who suddenly think, hey, I want to be a boy. They're giving them testosterone. Your warning thing in your androgel says, don't let females and children be exposed to it. Crazy stuff like that happening in our society today. All kinds of stuff going on. Oh, I can be this person or I can be that. No, you can't. We love everybody. We do. But folks, you can't deny truth and common sense. But already, what do we see? He's talking about at the end of time, Paul is in 2 Thessalonians, talking about at the end of time, how God's going to send a delusion on people and they're going to believe lies. And Paul says this is part of the judgment of God, showing they're under God's judgment and wrath because they wouldn't believe his truth. If you don't believe his truth, he'll send a delusion upon you so you will believe lies. It's part of his judgment. We know how all this is going to happen at the end because we see it happening now. At some point in the tribulation, there's going to be a leader on the world scene who promises peace. Everybody thinks he's the one who can bring it. But by the time it's said and done, he's going to cause untold grief and heartache for the people of God. Now let me make a quick point. I don't want to sidetrack us here, but there's something important to understand. Whether you believe that the tribulation spoken of here is a seven-year period, or you believe it's longer than that, and the seven years are to be interpreted as just a complete amount of time, however long it is, the principles are the same either way. It's just a matter of perspective as to how fast these things occur. Then there's the rider on the red horse, verses 3 and 4. The, the red horse symbolizes bloodshed. The reign of Antichrist, which begins in peace, turns into massive bloodshed on the earth. There, there's going to come a time of fighting such as this world has never seen before. This is signified by the point made here that he's given a great sword. There'll be civil wars all over the place. Nation rising up against nation. Kingdom against kingdom, as Jesus said. Then there's the black horse, verses 
5 and 6. Black in the Bible is often associated with famine. In Lamentations 5.10 it says our skin was black like an oven because of terrible famine. What is it that often follows war? It's famine. Food supplies and food chains are destroyed. You take 1946 for example. More people starved to death in 1946 than had been killed in the six years of war in World War II. Starvation, one of the most terrible ways to die known to man. Lamentations 4.9 says, Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger. For these pine away, stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. The Old Testament points out in a number of places where God used famine as part of his judgment. But what's different here is the scope of it. The pair of scales that the writer carried pictures the rationing that will have to result from the famine. Can you imagine people all over the world standing in, in food, line, uh, food lines or bread lines? Verse 6 of Revelation 6. A quart of wheat is barely enough to sustain one person for one day. It represents what you can hold in your Two hands cupped together with the grain running over. A denarius was one day's wage for an average worker. In other words, a man will have to labor all day long just to get enough food to feed himself that day. But even in the midst of that famine, God puts a limit on it. He says, don't harm the oil and the wine. There'll be an obsession with saving everything because there'll be so little. Like people were doing back in the days of the Great Depression. Folks, imagine this kind of scene in a World War famine. Next, the rider on the pale horse. The rider on this horse is death and Hades right behind. You can see the intensity building. First, there's, there's a false peace. Then there's worldwide wars. And then there's worldwide famine. And finally, all of these rolled into one under this fourth horse. This writer is given authority to kill by sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. And the result is over a fourth of the world's population will be killed. Just think of the disease that's going to get out of hand too. Folks, if you will not acknowledge the love of God, if you will not appropriate the grace of God, if you will not accept the Son of God, you will not avoid the wrath of God. It's as simple as that. There is coming a time that the door of grace is going to be shut, and just like in Noah's day, once the door is shut, it is too late. The same Bible that says God is love also says our God is a consuming fire and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You can come to God by faith today and find forgiveness for your sins but to those who refuse the grace of God there's only one thing left and that will be the judgment of God. Billy Graham wrote a book on Revelation entitled Approaching Hoofbeats, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. 
And in that book, Dr. Graham said, How near are the horsemen right now? I do not know. All I can say with certainty is that every sign points to one fact. The hoofbeats of the four horsemen are approaching, sounding louder and louder every day. And that is why I've entitled this book, Approaching Hoofbeats. Because the indication of God's judgment are growing stronger and stronger with each passing hour. Pray God opens our ears to hear and our eyes to see the warning before it's too late. Why am I reading this in Revelation in relation to Mark 13? They lay down right on top of one another. The passages. Look at verse 12 to 17 in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The the full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by the gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Exactly what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13. Even the same words and language. Verse 12, John starts talking in Revelation 6 about this great earthquake. And then stars falling, meteors, volcanoes, fires, all this kind of stuff. Again, identical words to Jesus. Identical. But here's the good news in it all. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in their white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now you go back to to Mark chapter 13 and look at what verse 27 says. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. What's Jesus talking about? What John's talking about in Revelation 7. When all God's people are gathered together and there's that great celebration of worship around God's throne. Fourthly, I want you to see the current need for discernment. Verses 28 to 31. Mark 13, 28 to 31. Jesus gives the lesson of the fig tree. Many of the trees in Israel keep their leaves year-round. But the fig tree uh, drops its leaves. And then in the spring of the year, just like here in the U.S., trees bud put their leaves back on. What's that a sign of? Summer. Jesus said there will be false Christ, wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, but the end is not yet. But then he now says when you see the future abomination of desolation and then the tribulation like never before and after that, then you see all these signs in heaven, you can now know that it's close. 
Then in verse 30, many would say we're back to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that many of Jesus' disciples there would see. Others say it's an eschatological generation living at the end of times that sees the final things. So again, you see the struggle. What applies to 70 AD? What applies to the end? Scholars differ. So what's the lesson? Fifth, fifth principle here, the necessity of being prepared. Verse 32 says, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Don't try to set dates. Jesus is saying here, only the Father knows. I want you to keep something in mind. In his incarnation, there were certain ways that Jesus limited himself. He was not less deity, but he was also full humanity. He got hungry, he got thirsty, he needed to rest. We can be grateful that he took on humanity because that means he can understand you and me in our times of weakness. And in his humanity, he was limited in knowing the dates set by the Father. Now, Bible scholars believe that now that Christ has been glorified and ascended to the Father, this limitation that characterized his incarnation no longer exists. But Jesus' point, however, here is to say, don't think you're going to get all of this figured out. Just be ready. You know why I think God put verse 32 here? Saying that even the son doesn't know. So the church wouldn't sit around for centuries trying to put dates on a calendar when, all it's, when it's all going to happen. Because Jesus says here, he doesn't even know. How ignorant it would be for you and me to try to set dates on a calendar if he said he didn't even know. But again, there's one thing he wants you and me to know. That we are to be ready that we're to be alert, that we're to be watching. Because you never know when the end will come. You don't know when the end of your life will come. Some of us in here may not be alive by dinner time tonight. You don't know that. We certainly don't know when the end of the world is going to be. Life is a vapor. Be faithful. He gives the illustration of this master leaving his estate, putting his servants in charge while he's gone. If the master didn't tell the servants how long he would be gone, they needed to be alert and faithful all of the time. Because they didn't know. He might come back that day. He might come back the next day. might be a month later. And so the servants just simply needed to concentrate on being faithful. If you know the Lord and you're faithful and you're alert and you're ready, it doesn't matter when the end's going to happen. Because you're going to be ready either way. God's left a bit of mystery, I think, on purpose. We see it even in the commission given to the disciples in Acts 1.8. They wanted to know, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the uttermost ends of of the world. Don't get so preoccupied with dates that you lose sight of what our current mission and passion is. Is supposed to be. Lila Naylor Morris, who lived from 1862 to 1929, wrote more than a thousand gospel songs. Her eyes began to fail at age 51. Her son built her a 28 foot blackboard for her that had oversized staff lines so she could continue to compose songs. One of her best known songs were. What if it were today? It says, what if it were today, Jesus is coming to earth. Again, what if it were today? Coming in power and love to reign, what if it were today? Satan's dominion will then be over. Oh, what if it were today? Sorrow and sighing shall be no more. What if it were today? Signs of his coming multiply. Morning light breaks in eastern sky. Watch For the time is drawing high, what if it were today? Indeed, what if it were today? Some takeaways. First, the temple was destroyed, showing that God is no longer dealing with man on the basis of the old covenant. The temple was destroyed showing that God is no longer dealing with man on the basis of the old covenant. Secondly, the end of time will not happen as fast as some believers through history may have expected to see it come to pass. Don't be deceived into thinking every headline you see in the world Events means that the end is near. Don't be so gullible. Third, a long delay calls for steadfastness and discernment on the part of true disciples. Be ready and busy about the Lord's work. Occupy yourself with the business of the Lord and that way, regardless of when he comes back, you will be ready. Father, we thank you that you allowed your son to address in an overview type way that the end will come. And he spoke of terrible times on the earth until that happens. Terrible times that the disciples would see in 70 AD. Terrible times that will happen at the end that is still future to us today. Lord, we see the effects of living in a fallen world and how men turn against men, women against women, and even parents against children, children against parents, nation against nation. And we see how bad it can get. And you've told us all of these things. So that we won't be shaken in our faith. You've told us to be about your business. To be watchful. 
and alert. Because it could be soon. But if not, we're to be strong and carry on anyway. Lord, help us to take these words to heart. Because as we live in 2023 and we see crazy stuff going on in our country and around the world, it'd be easy to be discouraged. God, may we only be strengthened in our resolve to be disciples of yours about your business. May we be found faithful whenever you come back. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.